Please turn your attention to our gospel sermon this morning from the end of the gospel of Mark, end of uh, chapter 15, verse 40, and then we're going to take it through to the end of the gospel of Mark. Here's what Mark writes. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word because we know that it is through your word and through your spirit you speak a word to our minds and our hearts, and we pray that you would do that this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have before us the resurrection narrative from the Gospel of Mark, and if you've been with us, you know that we started the second half of the Gospel of Mark last September, and we've been making our way steadily through So we land this morning on the resurrection narrative on Easter Sunday. If you're looking at your Bibles, you'll note that there are 12 more verses at the end of the Gospel of Mark that I didn't read, and that's because most scholars uh, think that uh, the verses 9 through 20 in your Bibles are a later addition by a scribe who didn't think the Gospel was complete and wrote his own ending and added it on. Um, It's different in style. It doesn't seem like it's original, so we're considering Mark's account of the resurrection ending at verse 8. I know some of you are watching the new season of The Mandalorian. I uh, won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but um, at the beginning of the third season, Din Djarin, the main character, has taken off his helmet, which is a no-no for a Mandalorian. That is breaking the code of the Mandalorians. It's violating their creed, and for that, he's going to lose his status. He's going to be kicked out of the Mandalorians, and he learns that the only way to redeem himself is by bathing in the waters beneath the mines of Mandalore which was not an easy thing to do. The planet of Mandalore has been uninhabited for years. There's a question whether the air is even breathable. 
Uh, it's a Star Wars franchise. Of course, he's going to battle a number of creatures to get there. And he takes on this quest at great personal risk and danger. But as the Mandalorians say, this is the way. And this is the way that we think we can find redemption by doing some great thing, taking on some great quest, summoning up our resolve, renewing our effort. We oftentimes think, if I can do some great thing, I will redeem myself. Here's the problem. Consider these posts from the website Medium. Here's one. Most of my life has been spent trying to redeem myself. Or here's another writer. You'll never make up for your past the long con of redemption. Here's what this writer says. He says, for most of my life, I tried to get back to an imagined time where I felt like I was at this incredible pinnacle. I can name every point in my life where I felt I'd reached new heights. The summer of 93, the summer of 96, the fall of 10. He says, at each peak, I felt as though I'd finally redeemed myself. I felt I'd finally made up for my mistakes and I could finally move forward. But he says, this lens of thinking is incredibly problematic. It's hard to get ahead when you spend your whole life trying to pull even. Here's a question. How do you redeem yourself when you spend your whole life just trying to keep up? How do you redeem yourself when you never feel good enough? See, you know, our heart of hearts, I think we know this, redeeming ourselves is exhausting. And I would suggest it's ultimately a self-salvation project doomed to failure and despair. Here's the good news of Christianity. It's the better way of redemption. We're not redeemed, says the Bible, through some great thing that we must do. We're redeemed by some great thing that he has done, Jesus Christ. It's his death and resurrection on our behalf that redeems us and transforms us. And I would suggest to you that these are what these verses I just read are about. The death and resurrection of Jesus that can redeem and transform us. Mark shows us the impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus through the lives of the people in this passage. And I think there is a who, and there's a what, and there's a how here. So I have, you'll be glad to know that I have three points. When I said last week that I had no points, one of my students came to me and said, I was really nervous when you said that. I thought this was going off the rails. So we're back to comfortable ground. There's three points. Who, who is redeemed? There's a what, what does that look like? And there's a how. How does this happen? First, the who. At the death of Jesus, it's surprising who's still standing around him because it's not who you'd expect. All the men have deserted. All Jesus' best friends have deserted him and fled. And it's some women who are with Jesus who are watching at a distance. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Mary, the mother of James and Joses, and some wonder whether this is a mother of Jesus, and we're not sure. If it was, it's strange that Mark wouldn't mention this. Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of Jesus' disciples, James and John, are all here. It's the first time they're mentioned as Jesus' disciples, but Mark tells us that these women followed Jesus and cared for his needs, and they represented other women who were also with them. What's surprising about this fact that these women are around Jesus is particularly because the Jewish opinion of women in that day was not very positive. 
For example, women could not serve as witnesses in a court of law because they were viewed as inferior and unreliable. And yet here's a wonderful thing. God chooses women as primary witnesses of the death and resurrection of Christ when the world wouldn't trust them, God trusts them. These particular women are the only ones to see it all, to see the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and then the resurrection, all three of those things. And it's evidence, I would suggest, that Mark's account is not a fable. It's not a fabricated account. Because if the gospel writers were making this up to try and get people to believe in Jesus, in his resurrection, they never would have put women as as a primary witness. That's an invitation to not believe. But Mark reports this because this is what happened. Women were the primary witnesses. And, And Mark gives their names. It's unusual for him to include names in his account. But he gives their names because they're eyewitnesses. They lived for many years after these events. So Mark is, in essence, saying to the readers, like, if you're not sure about these things, go, go find Mary Magdalene. Go find Salome. You know, you know who they are. Go find them and talk to them, and they'll tell you what they saw. In this gospel account, Mark is lifting up these women as model disciples of Jesus. And if you've been here and follow, have been following along, Mark has been planting these seeds all along. In chapter 12, he talks about a poor widow who puts in the treasury two small copper coins, much less than everybody else, but they gave out of their wealth and she gave everything that she had. In chapter 14, there's a woman who anoints Jesus with expensive perfume and Jesus says, he experienced that and he says, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done for me will be told. Another model disciple. Mark is pointing out the dignity and importance of women in a culture that relegated them to inferior second-class status. It's a testament to the fact that Christianity has the power to raise up the marginalized and the powerless and the outsiders and give them dignity and importance. But of course, it's not just about the marginalized and the powerless and the outsiders. Christianity also has the power to reach the elite and the powerful and the insiders. Look at Joseph of Arimathea. We're told he was a prominent member of the council. That is, I think, the Sanhedrin. So he was, he was a cultural elite. Matthew 27 tells us that he was a wealthy man. If the women were outsiders, this man is an insider. And we also are told he's a believer. And we'll talk more about what he does in a moment. Who does the gospel reach? It reaches insiders and outsiders, the marginalized and the elite, the powerless and the powerful. You know, equality is a cherished value today. We'd all recognize that. Every company has a DE&I officer. It is now an unquestioned assumption that everyone, no matter who they are, their background, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic level, is basically equal. It's a good thing. But I would, I would ask this question, what supports this assumption? Why, why do we believe this? Why do you believe this? Because Plato, the father of Western philosophy, assumed the opposite. That lives are unequal in value. His observation, some are men, some are women, some are Greeks, some are barbarians, some are free, some are slaves. They're rich and poor, wise and foolish, strong and weak. He says all that we see in nature is difference. Compare any two people concerning one, any one attribute, and what do you conclude? One has more, and one has less. They're not equal. 
So then what basis do we insist that two very different people are equal? Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli historian, puts it this way. He says, what are human rights? Take a human being. Cut him open, look inside. You'll find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA. But you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread. To take another example of value, consider the movie that just came out, Air. It's about uh, Nike and the rise of Air Jordans. Michael Jordan's mom says in this movie, and it's in the trailer, so this isn't ruining anything, but she says this line. She says, shoes are just shoes until my son steps into them. In other words, there's nothing special about a pair of shoes unless you find out that Michael Jordan has worn them, and then suddenly they become very valuable. In the same way, where does human value come from? If all we are is nothing but a bag of evolved chemicals, as scientists tell us, then what's really valuable about that? Shoes are a pair of shoes. Human bodies are, are, are human bodies. Nature is red in tooth and claw. There's no equality in nature. It's survival of the fittest. But Christianity comes along and says humanity is made in God's image. Christianity comes along and says humans have value because we're valuable to God. We're made in his image. We're connected to something greater outside of ourselves. Shoes are just shoes until someone famous steps into them. Bodies are just bodies until God says, that, no, they're made in my image. Because every human is made in the image of God, every human has dignity and importance, rich and poor, male and female, black and white, strong and weak. It's Christianity's great contribution to modern culture. Because without a narrative like this, where do human rights inequality come from? This is a biblical view that undergirds what, what Mark is saying in this gospel. In a first-century culture that devalued women and made them inferior and unreliable and second-class, Mark gives them dignity and importance because they're made in God's image and because they're model disciples. It's a surprise of who. Secondly, let's look at what? Mark also presents Joseph of Arimathea as a model disciple. Mark says he's waiting for the kingdom of God which I think is Mark's way of indicating that he is a genuine believer. Matthew confirms that in his account. He says Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus, Matthew 27, 57. In the Gospel of John, he says Joseph is a disciple, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So Joseph of Arimathea is a closet Christian who decides to go public with his faith, and he shows us what a, trans, a life transformed by the Gospel looks like. At Jesus' death, he asked for Jesus' body to give uh, the body a proper burial. And with this, Joseph is going public with his faith. Think about this. Joseph, in this moment, risks his own life. I mean, it took boldness and courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body because Jesus was executed as an enemy of the Roman state. He was a rival king. That's why all his friends deserted him. They didn't want to be associated with Jesus or their lives were on the line. That's why they all ran away and fled. And so when Joseph implicates and associates himself with Jesus, he's risking his own life. He's risking his reputation with his colleagues on the Sanhedrin. Joseph, as I just mentioned, was a prominent member of the council. 
that, that means he was powerful. He must have been powerful. He must have had connections. To be able to go to Pilate and ask for the body, he had connections. And his connections were, the, were through the Sanhedrin. His colleagues had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. And so when Joseph asks for the body for burial, he's standing against all of his colleagues. He's risking his reputation with all the Sanhedrin. And then he's expressing his devotion at significant personal cost. I mean, this is more than just a simple burial. It's lavish. It's at his own personal cost. He, he wraps the body in linen. John says that he uh, brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. I mean, this is lavish. It's not skimpy. He places uh, the body in a tomb in the rock. And Matthew tells us it's his own tomb. Joseph is giving his personal best. Joseph shows us what a gospel-transformed life looks like. A person of power and wealth and privilege, spending that not on himself for his own comfort and position, but pouring it out for Jesus. Pouring out his reputation for Jesus. Pouring out his power for Jesus. Pouring out his wealth for Jesus. Before he was a Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis was a professor of medieval literature at Cambridge University. And he wrote an essay entitled The Necessity of Chivalry, which I'd never read. I never knew about this. I thought I'd read everything, but, but I, I discovered this new essay. And in it, he offers up the medieval concept of the ideal human as a contribution to our modern day. He says the ideal human is best captured by the description of the greatest of all imaginary knights, Sir Lancelot, in Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur. And here's a quote. Here, here's the description of Sir Lancelot. Thou wert the meekest man that ever ate in hall among ladies, and thou were the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear to the test. Lewis comments this. He says, the important thing about this ideal is, of course, the double demand it makes on human nature. The knight is, on the one hand, a man of blood and iron, a man familiar with the sight of smashed faces and the ragged stumps of lopped off limbs. On the other hand, he is also a demure, almost maiden-like guest in hall, a gentle, modest, unobtrusive man. He is not a compromise or a happy mean between ferocity and meekness. He is fierce to the nth and meek to the nth. Lewis is saying that this medieval ideal brings together two things in humanity that doesn't often happen and it doesn't usually happen in nature. Great boldness and courage on the one hand and great humility on the other. Lewis observes that so often humanity falls to one side or the other. In his words, those who can deal in blood and iron but who cannot be meek and whole and those who are meek in hall, but who are useless in battle. Lewis is a person who combines both of these knightly characters, the courage and the humility, is not a work of nature, but of art, the kind of art that has human beings instead of canvas, a canvas or marble for its medium. My friends, Mark is showing us that the gospel produces Sir Lancelot's. This unique combination of, on the one hand, boldness and courage, and on the other hand, great humility. It's Joseph of Arimathea, who poured out his wealth and his power for the sake of others. And I would say to us this morning, imagine 
What the world would be like if those with wealth and power and privilege spent it not on themselves and their own comfort, but poured it out for the sake of others. If our governing leaders were all this way, this would be a different country and a different world. If everyone who did business, who we did business with poured themselves out for others to serve others, this would be a different economy. If we were this way and our spouses were this way, our marriages would be different. You see, those with courage and humility, both, make the best leaders, the best friends, the best spouses, the best parents. And it's no surprise that Jesus can do this because Jesus himself modeled this. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The story of the gospel is this, how Jesus came into this world and poured out his power and wealth and privilege for us. And so when Jesus transforms a person, what does it look like? Look at Joseph of Arimathea. So then the last question you ask is, how does this happen? How do I experience this kind of transformation? Mark doesn't tell us how the transformation of Joseph takes place, but he does tell us how the transformation of these women and disciples take place. And for our comfort, it doesn't happen all at once. I mean, the women are trembling and bewildered at the end of this passage. They're not transformed, but it does happen. What happens in chapter 16 transforms them because we know the early church eventually exploded into the world on the testimony of these women and the earliest disciples. How are they transformed? Consider with me. The, the women go to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' dead body. They are not expecting him to rise from the dead. That's the last thing from their mind. They're going to anoint the dead body. They couldn't do it on the Sabbath, so this is the first chance they get to do it. They arrive at the tomb, and they see the stone rolled away. And they enter, and they see a young man dressed in white robes, presumably an angel. And he delivers a wonderful and perplexing Message to them. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. There is a lot compressed in these words. Let me try and unpack them this way. These women hear the good news of the gospel which is that Jesus, the one who was crucified, the very one who was crucified, is risen again. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's not something more for us to do. It's something that has been done for us. Death and resurrection, not a resuscitation. There's, there's confirmation in this passage that Jesus really did die. The confirmation of the centurion and Pilate. The women, Joseph, handled the body. He knew it was a dead body. The resurrection was not wish fulfillment. No one was expecting Jesus to die, not his male disciples, not the women disciples. They were expecting that he was dead. They were anointing a dead body. That was their expectation. And when they go, they find the empty tomb. And the body is missing, and Jesus' body has never been produced because he rose again from the dead. And he appeared to all the disciples and to 501 occasions. So it's not a group hallucination. There's no such thing as a group hallucination. And because of this, the church was launched. And so if you don't believe in the resurrection, 
You, you have to provide some explanation for the worldwide church, the Christian church that rose up from this moment. You have, to, you have to provide some explanation for why and how that took place. You have to provide some explanation for how these fearful, timid disciples were transformed and became world changers and courageous and bold. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it's evidence that God has accepted his sacrifice for our sins. The resurrection is evidence that our sins have been paid in full on the cross by Jesus. If you have a big outstanding bill and you pay it off, they will print on it paid in full as evidence that that bill can never again be held over your head. And on the cross, confirmed by the resurrection when, Jesus, when God raised him from the dead, it says, the resurrection says, paid in full across our sins. They can never be held over our head again. It's the good news of the gospel. That's what these women hear. They hear the good news of the gospel. And then they experience the grace of the gospel. When the angel says, go and tell the disciples and, and Peter, I will see them again in Galilee. It is a word of grace. Because what could Jesus, or what could Jesus have said through this angel? This angel could have said on behalf of, of Jesus, go tell those spineless cowards and weasels that if they grovel enough, if, if they bow and scrape enough, I might take them back. But he doesn't say that. He says, tell them, I'll see them again in Galilee. It's a word of grace for failures. And interestingly, the, the angel singles out Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter, I'll see them. Why does he single out Peter? See, what, happened, what would have happened if the angel said, just go, go tell the disciples I'll see them in Galilee? What would Peter have been thinking? Yeah, he wants to see the other disciples, but not me. Because I'm the failure. I'm the one who really screwed up. He wants to see them, but not me. And so Jesus is very pastoral here, and he says, tell the disciples and Peter. I will see them. It's grace for the worst of sinners. It's restoration and a new start for the greatest of failures. He says, tell them, I'll see them in Galilee. That was the place where he first called them as disciples. And that would be then the place of restoration, the place of a fresh start. My friends, the resurrection opens up new beginnings and a new life and a new world in such profound ways. I don't have time this morning to talk about and unfold all of that. These women hear the good news of the gospel. They experience the grace of the gospel, and then they're sent on mission for the gospel. The angel says, go and tell. And initially, these women are fearful, and they flee, and they don't speak to anybody. But we know eventually they did go and tell because the church exploded. And we here this morning, sitting in 2023 in Montclair, New Jersey, are evidence that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth compared to Jerusalem. The gospel has gone forth. The gospel is not just for the transformation of a close circle of Jesus' friends. It's transformation for the world. How are these women transformed? They hear the good news of the gospel. They experience the grace of the gospel. And they're sent out on mission for the gospel. Tony Loudon grew up in the ghetto of North Philadelphia in a trap house. He says older folks would call it a bootleg house. It's a house where there's always gambling and alcohol and drugs 24-7. 
Tony's mom ran that trap house. He had no father in his life, which meant that he was a slave of that trap house. His job was to come home every day after school to clean up the trap house, to pick up the empty beer cans, to clean up the ashtrays and the vomit, sometimes the vomit of his own mother. He had to watch men beat and abuse his mom. It's a very difficult place to grow up. His mom used to beat him with a braided extension cord, not because he was a bad kid or because he misbehaved in school, but because he did not subscribe to the way of life in her house. He would stay at school or go to the basketball court deliberately so he wouldn't have to go home. But this would mean he would come home late from school, be late in doing his chores, and he'd get a whipping. Tony had a nana, an aunt, who said to him, if you come to church with me, I'll bake you banana pudding. And so he started going to church for two reasons. To chase that banana pudding, and so he could watch the Eagles and Phillies games on his aunt's TV, which he didn't have. He ended up sitting in the front row of church with her. And after church, she would take him home and make him banana pudding and rub cocoa butter on the wounds from his beatings from his mom. When he was 10, he remembers hearing a sermon on Acts 16 on Paul and Silas being beaten and locked up in jail and the jailer asking, what must I do to be saved? And he leaned forward to listen. He could relate to being beaten and whipped. And he wanted to know about a God who could save a jailer. When Tony was 12 years old, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and was baptized. He eventually went off to USC on an athletic scholarship where he studied government and economics. Since then, Tony has worked for the California governor, for Democratic and Republican caucuses. He started after-school programs for kids. He's pastored in both white and black churches. He served under two U.S. presidents, one a Democrat and the other Republican. And he's now the first black pastor of Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter is a member and has taught Sunday school. And Tony says this, when I look back on my life, it still brings tears to my eyes because I'm still that little boy from North Philadelphia from a mother who used to call me the N-word more than any white person has called me the N-word. She'd say, you're a no-good N-word, just like you're, you're no-good daddy. He says, to come from that, to all the things that God has done in my life, there's no one that can tell me that he's not real. That's why I do everything I can to put him on display in every area of my life. The death and resurrection of Jesus can redeem us and transform us. Anyone. There's no one beyond reach. There's no one too second class. No one less than. The gospel, when it takes hold of our lives, turns us into people of courage and boldness who, who delight in pouring out our wealth and power for others. How does that transformation take place? It's when we hear the words of the gospel. That Jesus died and rose again from, for, for our sakes so we don't have to redeem ourselves. We can let go of all our self-salvation projects. We can experience the grace of the gospel. We can fail and Jesus still loves us. We can totally screw up and he'll restore us and give us a fresh start and send us out on mission for the gospel to go and tell, to put him on display in every area of our life. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world. 
to die on a cross in our place and to raise him again from the dead for our justification as confirmation that our sins are paid in full. Lord, help us now to experience the grace of the gospel and then give us ways to go out and go and tell what you've done for our sakes. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.